I think one of the, the things that really separates us from the high primates is that uh, we're tool builders. And I read a, uh, a study that measured the efficiency of locomotion for various species on the planet. The condor used the least energy to move a kilometer. And uh, humans came in uh, with a rather unimpressive showing about a third of the way down the list. It was not, not uh, too proud of a showing for the crown of creation. So uh, that didn't look so good, but then somebody at Scientific American had the insight to test the efficiency of locomotion for a man on a bicycle. And a man on a bicycle, or a human on a bicycle, blew the condor away, completely off the top of the charts. And that's what a computer is to me. Uh, what a computer is to me is, it's the most remarkable tool that we've ever come up with. And it's the equivalent of a bicycle for our minds. Cyberdeck Users Weekly. You were just listening to, of course, Steve Jobs uh, giving his famous quote. Uh, obviously, easy to misquote as the computer is a bicycle for our minds, but it's uh, an equivalent um, to a bicycle for our minds. I think that's actually the phrasing. Uh, I, I'm not going to go back and listen <laughs> again. Uh, and at the risk of sounding very disrespectful uh, to uh, one of the uh, greats of the industry and one of the best lines to explain how to think about computers, I'm going to try to come up with my own one. So here we go. Uh, so do you ever watch... The, the bike racing in the Olympics in when they're in a stadium in the in the velodrome. So it's like a it's like a banked track, uh, like typically made out of wood, uh, and they go very very fast in a circle, uh, and they wear spandex, and uh, some a lot of times sometimes some of the races have like rolling starts, but some of the races. They they literally have like their team captain or whatever like holding their seat like holding their bike up, uh, like they're sta in a standing start and you know it's it's kind of a powerless position you know uh, uh, a bicycle really is only working when it's going fast you know uh, some people can stall a bike and stand still uh, but. You're really alive when you're going, like, I don't know how fast they go, 30, 40 miles per hour around the track. Uh, maybe faster, who knows? Um, I'm sure somebody knows, actually. So, and then, you know, the, there's some pretty gnarly crashes. Like, if you try, you're trying to make a pass or something like that, you turn a little too hard, uh, and then your wheels slide out from under you, uh, and, you know, you, your uniform gets all ripped up and you get road rash and stuff like that. Um, not that there's anything wrong with bicycles, but what if we thought of compute computing as, or the computer as a skateboard for the mind, right? Man, it, now that I actually say it 
out loud. That sounds really disrespectful. Um, sorry, Steve Jobs. So, so skateboarding is improvisational. Uh, it is, it's just the opposite of riding a bike in a circle in a velodrome. Uh, it's repeated failure. You know, some of my favorite YouTubers, when they try to land a trick, they uh, do it like they just do a montage of uh, like failing at the trick a hundred times. Then they land it sketchily. Then they fail another 50 times and then they really land it and they're happy with that take or they're just tired. And so they go home and put up the YouTube video. Um Skateboarding is very much about a creative recombination to, to make a new trick. Like most of the basic elements of, of the tricks are known. Uh, but uh, what if I added another 180 degrees of rotation to an existing trick? Or, you know, um, what if I tried it fakie or um, switch? Or, um, you know, what is the difference between fakie and switch? Who knows? I'm sure somebody knows. Also, um, there's no right way to, to skate. Um, there are definitely different styles, um, like there's street uh, skating, and then there's like, you know, so like, you know, jumping on a curb and over a bench and, and that kind of stuff. Um, uh, and then there's, you know, the more for, like, not formalized, um, like a lot of the competition skating is like, in, like with uh, half pipes and quarter pipes and bowls and stuff like that um but that's also a style of skating and you know that's what skate parks are typically um you understand what skateboarding is i don't think i need to explain this but it's also way slower than riding a bike um i don't know if you've ever tried to use a skateboard for transportation it's it's not actually a very efficient way of traveling you know and maybe you can get bigger wheels but then it's harder to do cool tricks with the big wheels um but it's much cooler than riding a bike especially than riding a bike in a velodrome. Like, as efficient and, and, and amazing as someone riding a bike in a velodrome is, it is not the coolest way to look. You don't look casual. Um, and I'm making an analogy here to computers. So, what I'm saying here is that the, the, the trade-offs that we've made in the development of computers since the 60s, have been going for sort of efficiency and raw speed, often at the expense of the ability to turn. You know, you, 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 you don't, you, you lack a lot of the flexibility to do exactly what you want with the computer. Um, and in exchange, and I don't know if it's actually an exchange, but like what we have is the ability to do whatever someone else wanted you to do with your computer with some amount of power, speed, and efficiency, maybe. Um, and maybe not always that, you know. But computers have gotten very complex, very difficult to program. Um, and they were always difficult to program. And they are always, as far as human tools go, <laughs> very complex. Uh, but uh, it seems to me maybe we've gotten um, gone too far in certain directions. Um, the best mind bicycle I've ever owned is my iPad. 
uh, because it's always fast, it's always responsive, and it's actually really secure. It's, it's, it's very streamlined and efficient at doing the very small set of things that it's designed to do. Uh, and, and, and some of that is just the form factor, but some of that is also uh, of what it's designed to do, but also some of that is just arbitrary restrictions by Apple um, on who can make software for this. You know, who is allowed to write software, to write sub-tools for this tool? Uh, and <laughs> coding, coding on an iPad is like writing the wrong way in a velodrome. Like, it is the most beautiful and efficient and streamlined way to not create software. Because, uh, you know, maybe you could, like, SSH into like a remote computer somewhere and like do some web programming or something. And then there's like these very hacky things that have been built on top that like can simulate, it can like run an emulator almost to like execute C++ or whatever. Um, and then there's like some Python. I've actually written some scripts for my iPad in Python and that kind of works, but it's, it's obviously going against the grain of that machine. And um, and the 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 glaring uh, hole is that you can't make an iPad app on an iPad. You can't you can't create the blessed version or it, it really hardly anything that is a native application for the iPad using an iPad other than like you know writing a little bit of Swift code and then you copy and paste it onto a real computer and like you know compile and execute. Xcode. So, so what I want to try to do is think about what would a, a skateboard computer be like? How do we get there? Actually, I don't know if I have anything in here about getting there. Um, but what is skateboardness in computing terms? And uh, this is definitely one of those ones where... I feel kind of liberated by the the podcasting medium of mostly just asking questions, throwing out some ideas. I don't really have a strong closer. Um, I don't have a good solution or an obvious path forward, but I just want to riff on this idea. Uh, thank you for uh, um, accompanying me on this journey. So why am I thinking about this? Obviously, because I'm still reading this book called The Cuckoo's Egg, uh, where this, um, it's this guy in Berkeley, and he's uh, one of like a few uh, system administrators for the, the, the science community's uh, computing power. Um, like they, like scientists like literally pay by the hour to access these machines that they're administering. He notices a hacker in his system, and he starts um, fighting the hacker using computing tools mostly. Um, and it really made me think of this, that you know, the, the classic William Gibson quote, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Like, people use computers right now as skateboards. And people in 1989, when this book took place, this guy was totally using his computer as a skateboard in the, the sense that I'm, I'm going for. Uh, 
and I'm, I'm just finding myself really jealous of how much agency this guy has over his computer. He's, it seems like a much more powerful tool in his hands than any of my computers, you know, with all the advantages I have of, of 31 years later and Fios, you know, I don't feel as powerful as he seems to be. Uh, so he's, he's tracking this hacker and, uh, he also has like this day job. He's an astronomer, and he's uh, like like phoning it in as an astronomer by like writing software for other astronomers, uh, uh, which is is entertaining in itself. So here are some of the skateboard things he does uh, with his computer. So he physically intercepts the hacker's connection to his system and wires that up to printers. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling this book for you, but it's been out for a while. Um, one of the first ways he does that is he has to tap like every line that he suspects and wire, like he steals computers from around his whole um, uh, campus or, or at least his building, uh, steals computers and printers, like old computers, old printers, and wires them up to each individual line to print out. You know, in a sense, what a pain in the ass, but it's also kind of cool that he can do that. Um, I mean, I don't really want it to be easy for anybody to just tap into my communication lines, obviously, but there's just something interesting about that. Um, so he's like taps into the line and then prints out everything that comes through that line, uh, like all the, all the instructions. Um, when he set, later on, he sets up this system so that when because uh, he has like a system at his desk uh, to alert him when the hacker is logged on because uh, he figures figures some stuff out about that. And um, he'll like, you know, sleep uh, at his desk or under his desk, you know, like waiting for this hacker to show up and it's it's harming his home life. So he uh, he buys a pager. He sets he gets like a I don't even know what it's it's like a telephone dialer at Radio Shack. I don't even know what that is really. Uh, but basically an interface from his computer to a phone to call his pager because pagers would work th through a call. Um, and then on top of that, when the his, uh, and this is alert an alert system for him so he can be out and about um, and be alerted that the hacker has logged on. Um, and it even like sends a message and Morse code to him so that he knows like which uh, um, account the hacker is using at, at the time. Uh, that's really cool. I don't know how I would do anything along those lines. Like there are definitely some centralized services. Like I could probably wire something up, right? To um, send a text message based on some sort of notification. Um, but... Uh, for me, it'd be a little bit of a stretch. Also, it feels like it, I would end up relying on a lot of centralized services to do that. And maybe that's fine. And, you know, the phone system he's relying on is obviously pretty centralized. Um, so it's not like that's impossible, but it's pretty cool. And it's it's kind of a rare way of, of how we, like notifications on our phones are almost all generated by other people, you know? Uh, how many of the notifications are the things that we truly decided to, to have be 
the notifications that we want for very specific knowledge, not just knowledge that an app developer, you know, requested permission to share with us, but something that we thought we needed to know. Because obviously, he's in a novel situation and he's able to write tools that are responding to that novel uh, situation. Um, for his day job, he writes a computer simulation of a telescope bending because apparently telescopes bend when they're pointed towards the horizon uh, because of gravity and it's, you know, very sensitive instruments. It's not related to the hacker, but it's still pretty cool. Something I wouldn't know how to do. And obviously there are people that exist right now who could do something like that. Um, but there, there's something that, something feels just a little off, like how good our computers are at math and how little math I do on my computer. A lot of math is done on my behalf when I'm playing a video game, for instance, but I don't do a lot of math with my computer and I feel like I would be using my computer more appropriately were I to do more math. Um, and so maybe I just need to learn more math, but I don't know, there's something interesting about that, especially the simulation aspect. Because uh, he's doing something that you couldn't really feasibly do without a computer. Um, he also does like a statistical interpretation of like 5,000 phone calls. He gets this log of 5,000 phone calls that he writes them, types them into his computer twice to check for errors, um, which is ridiculous. Um, uh, and then he does some like statistical inf inference on it. And that's something like, I think a lot of people can do something along those lines. Like there's a lot of people, I'm not great at Excel, but there's a lot of people who are very good at Excel. And uh, I'm actually a little jealous of those people because I feel like that's something that computers are very good at uh, using like, you know, digesting and, and learning from huge um, tables of data. And, uh, and it's, it's kind of mathy too. So yeah, maybe this kind of tool builder person is always going to be outlier. Like this guy is obviously a good programmer, knowledgeable about Unix and stuff. Um, and he is, you know, he's graduate level astronomy type person. So he's really knowledgeable about math as well. Uh, but this, this is his job. So it makes sense that this guy is good at tool building. But I guess where I'm uncertain is how much of an outlier this sort of person has to be. Could we make it easier for people to make their own tools um, to respond to novel situations, to improvise, to do, to use computers for the very specific purposes that they want to use them for instead of necessarily whatever the company that, that made tools for them wanted them to use their computers for. Um, so next, next section, I want to talk about the Unix philosophy, which it might sound pretty familiar to most people. Um, it's, it's widely cited. It's rarely followed. Uh, although I, I see a lot of like command, a lot of programmers who are into this, um, think of uh, software this way. Um, and write little tools in this in this manner. So I, I see a lot of it. I feel like I see a lot less of it in the consumer space. Um, so Unix philosophy, uh, part part one, make each program do one thing well. To do a new job, build a fresh, rather than complicate old programs by adding new features. 
scare quotes on features. Uh, so do one thing, do it well. It's a beautiful thought. I think it's mostly right. The only problem is that sometimes when you try to build a whole system of little pieces, you end up with so much complexity trying to coordinate the little pieces and get them to talk to them to each other perfectly um, that you end up with more complexity than if you just build a, a, what's called a monolith. So, so there's this um, uh, back and forth in the computer industry between microservices, which has kind of been a hot buzzword in the past decade, and maybe it's starting to taper off a bit, um, and monolithic applications. Um, and maybe there's a sweet spot. Maybe this will be in a forever war. Um, also, there's this famous case in JavaScript of the JavaScript ecosystem is all about pulling in packages that were written by other people to support the software that you're writing. Um, and there was a, somebody did this little piece of software called uh, LeftPad. That LeftPad is like adding spaces to the start of the line so you can like line some other lines up. Um, and the developer of LeftPad like rage quit and pulled his software off and it like broke tons of other people's software. So there's stuff to think about, but do one thing, do it well. I think there's something really strong there, um, especially when it comes to making your own tools and finding tools that are useful and composable to do the things that you actually want to do. Um, and that very much goes into the next point. So point two, expect the output of every program to become the input to another, as yet unknown, program. Don't clutter output with extraneous information. Avoid stringently columnar or binary input formats. Don't insist on interactive input. So obviously this very much ties to, if you have programs that do one thing, do it well, they need to be able to coordinate or pass data to another, you know, program. Like maybe the first one, um, like, you know, processes the text and turns it into HTML. And then the next one does the next step. I don't know. I'm not very good at using Unix uh, command line programs. Um, a lot of times you're like, you'll search, um, You'll use one program to to list all the processes running on your computer, and then you'll pipe that into another program that narrows down that search um, into the things that you're interested in, and then you'll pipe that into like awk, which will like um, kind of reformat that text into the format that you actually want, and then you'll pipe that into a file, and you'll save that as like a log, you know. Things like that um, are, you know, very Unixy ways of using computers. Um, as mad as I am about uh, iOS's allergy to user-built software, uh, I actually find the iOS music ecosystem to be one of the best examples of this in the modern world, especially from a consumer perspective, because it's all these little pieces that work very well together. There's this um, AUV3 standard, and so you can have programs that either run independently or host each other as like little mini effects. You know, if you've ever used like a music program or a DAW and you use like VSTs, like little effects that you can wire up, it's kind of like that, but kind of more powerful because it can also go across multiple programs. So you'll have like 
one program to generate a, a sequence of MIDI notes, right? And then you pipe that into your synthesizer to generate audio from those. And then you like, you know, pipe that into uh, a, uh, an effect. Uh, and then you pipe that maybe back to your original program um, that was sending out the MIDI in the first place. And then that's like where your audio output happens. It's very cool. So uh, number three, design and build software, even operating systems to be tried early, ideally within weeks. Don't hesitate to throw away the clumsy parts and rebuild them. So this is kind of funny because Unix is like the oldest software in the world. I mean, like we're all, we're running computers. If you run um, iOS or you run Mac or you run um, Linux, you're running Unix basically. Um, and I guess some parts of it do get thrown away and revised, but <laughs> there is a sense where I would like to start over a little more often. Um, but we're very tied to sort of legacy systems right now. We're built on kind of legacy systems. Uh, number four, uh, use tools in preference to unskilled help to lighten a programming task. Even if you have to detour to build the tools and expect to throw some of them out after you've finished using them. Uh, another way this is commonly comes up is called a yak shave in programming, where you, you're you working on a problem or a project, and you realize that what you really what would really help is a very specific tool, and that nobody else cares enough about this problem to build that tool, so you need to build the tool. So you start building the tool, and that becomes a bigger project than the first project, and then maybe that tool needs another tool to help you build that tool. And uh, this, this is, it's almost a disease in the mind of a programmer. Someone who's capable of building tools actually kind of can sometimes get stuck building tools. Uh, the solution is just to build more tools, obviously, because you, then there's more tools, and then maybe one once in a blue moon when you uh, reach for um, a tool, it's there, it's there, and then you can actually get that original project done. But who knows? Uh, something to think about. Okay, new section. I wanted to bring up small talk, and I can't go very much into depth with this because I don't really know a ton about small talk. But uh, I've seen some really cool demos, uh, and it's kind of an example of how computers can be more improvisational. Uh, there's this concept in small talk called reflection, which is mostly just not a modern thing that happens in most mainstream software. Uh, here's a quote uh, from an article I found about it. A reflective program is one that reasons about itself. A fully reflective procedurally arch oh, wait, a fully reflective procedural architecture, Smith, 1983, is one in which a process can access and manipulate a full, explicit, causally connected representation of its own state. Yeah, right? Uh, causally connected means that any changes made to a process's self-representation self are immediately reflected in its actual state and behavior. So, 
basically think about your computer, right? And you're running some programs. What can you change about your computer right now? Like you could change your desktop picture. You could change which programs you're running. You could change the, like, are you in dark mode or um, non-dark mode? You know, like you could change maybe the theme of your UI if you're really advanced. Um, but can you change the logic of a program while it's running? Like a program is works in a certain way and you wished it worked a little bit differently. You, in the small talk model, you could open up the code for that program and find the one little piece of logic that is responsible for the behavior that you don't like or that you wish was augmented somehow. And you'd change it while it's running and then go on with your day very powerful concept, possibly very impractical to actually build. Like there might be so many trade-offs to the to the difficulty of building a system like that that maybe that's not ever going to really work. But there are have been some pretty advanced systems that worked in this way. Uh, I don't know. It's something to think about, something to dream about, and dream dream for. I think uh, because it, it it's very cool. And it's very powerful and empowering. Next section. Wearables. Uh, so I've been uh, uh, thinking about some of these things for a long time, and I've got a few pieces that I like. I'm proud of. I think of as like least checkpoints in my road to to thinking about computers more uh, in a kind of a critical way. Um, so I wrote this piece in. Uh, 2012 about wearables. It was kind of fun one because I, I did a lot of the research uh, for it um, before I left the internet. And I had like archived and downloaded as much as I could find about wearables as my resources because I was about to leave the internet and then I wouldn't be able to use the internet to investigate this piece. Uh, so it was, it was pretty fun. Um, and obviously uh, arbitrarily difficult. Uh, so... Um, the big thing that was happening then was Google's Project Glass. Uh, and I was pretty sure that they were kind of headed in the wrong direction because there was some aspect, it wasn't very computery. It was an interface to Google services, which is fine and interesting, but not what I want computers to necessarily be. And so I found these interesting references to like the history, in the history of wearables of, of how computery they could be. Um, so here's a quote from my piece. I'm sorry for how um, self-referential I'm being. One of the first applications of a wearable computer was beating roulette. Nerds have been bringing computers into casinos as early as the 60s, culminating in the 80s with serious wins at roulette. Thomas Bass, who wrote the, who wrote the definitive piece on wearables for Wired in 1998, smuggled a shoe computer to a table gaining a 44% advantage over the house. Now, the quote continues. Predicting roulette is using a computer for something only a computer could do. It's taking in the same visuals as a human, but then running complicated calculations to predict the deceleration of the wheel, the movement of the ball, and eventual landing spot. The problem is similar to landing a spaceship on the moon, writes Bass except all the calculations have to be done within the few seconds between the launch of the game and the croupiers, I think that's how you say that, call to place your bets, end quote. Uh, 
So I, I, I think that speaks for itself in the sense of a computer being used in a computer way, right? Um, so the piece also digs into a concept called effective computing, um, which I've also referenced. I really should have just republished this Thomas Bass article because that's really what it was all about anyways. Um, okay, new, new quote from my piece. In Bass's Wired piece, he spends time with Jennifer Healy, another Media Lab graduate student working in the effective computing group. She lived life with electrodes on her face to track when she was smiling and frowning, rings to measure the conductivity of her skin, like sweat, and a heart rate monitor. A Palm Pilot tracked the data, and an earpiece could let her know how she was doing. Uh, uh, quote continues, Your wearable computer could whisper in your ear, writes Negroponte. Um, so I'm referencing some piece by Nicholas Negroponte now. Um, perhaps after playing for a few too many hours with a few too many kids, patience, the birthday party is almost over, is what the computer would whisper into your ear. Okay, end quote. Um, so that sounds creepy if Google or Facebook tried to do it for you, right? Like, this is something that's really impossible to be given to you by someone. It's kind of something you, in a sense, have to cobble together or build yourself just so that it's trustworthy somehow. Um, or find some very different kind of company that could provide this sort of thing to you. Um, but I think it's, I think it's uh, skateboard-like. I think there's something about uh, uh, wearable computing that's very that's possible, that's very interesting, where you use computers as computers to do things that computers are good at um, to solve. I think what's important is novel problems. You know, it's the skateboard versus the bike in the velodrome thing, where like the improvisation and recombination, you know, the small tools of Unix versus here is what here is the direction around the track that you must go you know um where when you when someone builds the software for you and um has this whole ecosystem tied to it and it has some sort of momentum and direction and they've got sort of their own plan and they're trying to feed their own machine learning algorithms with the data about your own sweat, you know, it, it goes awry. Um, but if it's small tools that you can compose yourself to solve your own novel problems, like maybe getting angry at birthday parties isn't your problem, but you're trying to track, you know, a very specific mood that you feel certain times that you want to know what it's coming from. And it turns out it's like whatever you eat eggplant. I don't know. But uh, that that kind of thinking, I feel like, is um, could be interesting, um, and it needs a more of a skateboarding approach. Okay, new section. I think I'm like I'm definitely over halfway done. Uh, another article I wrote uh, is about the uh, Dyson sphere, which I really I'm really proud of this comparison because I think it's it's really it's a, a really fun way to think about how much of ourselves are our computers capturing in terms of user interface? Um, it's kind of along the lines of effective computing where the computer, you know, like, you know, sees that you're sweating or that you're smiling. Um, so the Dyson sphere, uh, if you're not familiar, here's the definition from Wikipedia. 
A Dyson sphere is a hypothetical megastructure that completely encompasses a star and captures a large percentage of its power output. Uh, and here's, I'll just uh, speed to the end. Um, not that any of us have ever done this, but uh, this is the last paragraph of the piece. Ultimately, it's not that I want to use less of my computers. I just want my computers to use more of me. Luckily, most of the things I've outlined here, uh, like, uh, you know, things about voice and video and, um, you know, the connect and um, touch gestures, things like that, are obvious and inevitable evolutions of computer interaction. What scares me is that in the meantime, we'll get so hung up on natural user interface that we'll just use fancy new gestures and voice commands to do the exact same tasks we've been doing with perfect speed and accuracy for years. So natural user interface was a big buzzword at this time. I think this is yeah, 2011. I don't hear that as much, um, you know, maybe because in some senses we have adopted them in the sense of Alexa and Google Assistant, that kind of thing. Um, in other ways, like, um, like memorizing complicated gestures to tell your computer something has definitely not panned out. Uh, the, 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 my metric for it is, is this mode of interfacing just as easily done with some buttons or a keyboard? You know, um, I remember just being so utterly disappointed in Connect Star Wars when I got to test it out because uh, I was so hyped on Connect. Connect is a user interface that's pulling in more information, right, from the world. Um, like a kind of a, you could make a 3D representation of a person and then kind of map that to a bone structure. Like you could kind of make a, a pretty good skeleton out of you um, and then use that in the game somehow. And uh, I don't know if you, there's this like Japanese game show where you like pose as kind of like a Tetris piece and this wall comes at you and tries to, to, to you try to fit that, that very specific shape that's cut out in that wall so that you don't get knocked into the pool or whatever. That's what this Connect game was like. Instead of using sort of your analog motion and the subtleties of your motion to, to do something in the game, uh, you basically try to match a pose that would be mapped to a specific action in the game. And it was, it's like you're doing so much more work and the output is exactly the same if you hit the A or the X or the Y button, you know? It's very dumb. Um, now we have like a Beat Saber, which is fully analog and you swing your lightsabers full, full freedom in all dimensions. And it's amazing. And the game, it doesn't have the Star Wars IP. Uh, it, 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 you're literally chopping blocks that come at random it, it, uh, angles. And it's so simple, but it's so satisfying because it really captures uh, analog data. It, you could not re recreate that with buttons and, and a joystick or something. Um, along these lines, um, <laughs> something that I found really interesting is uh, Google Lens. I think there's something to it um, in the, you know, it's a little more computery um, than like maybe, the, you know, remember I was mad about Google Glass, like your computer uh, uses, using your phone's camera 
and the power of Google's machine learning, but also their search, you can do some really interesting things that aren't very possible without, without this functionality. Um, so like Google Lens, like, you know, you take a picture of a product and then it finds it online. Um, I think it does things like that. Uh, they've got a new example out that I'm kind of excited about, like it's copy and paste text. Um, so you could write a note out and like take a picture of it with Google Lens and then becomes text that you can copy and paste. It feels kind of like a tool, not just like an appendage of Google because, you know, copy and paste is well understood and then very recombinable. Maybe that's why I find it more interesting. I also think it's funny that I recently like super doxed myself. Um, I was trying to scan uh, uh, my driver's license and social security card and I was taking a photo of it and this little thing popped up like, oh, it looks like you're trying to scan a document. Do you want to like, because I know the camera has some mode where it like will take take when you take a picture of a document, it will like kind of flatten it out and like reorient it, you know, kind of make it look like an actual real scan. So I was trying to, uh, I saw that pop up and then it disappeared and I was trying to find it. So I switched to Google lens and now Google lens like lights up and like, I could just imagine like what is actually happening with this thing right now? Like it is reading, you know, highly um, identifying information about me and then like transmitting it to Google servers. And like, is it doing a Google search with my, my social security number right now? I don't know. Um, it's hilarious. Um, I try to keep most of those Google features turned off, but Google Lens is so interesting. I don't really use it a lot, but I like to think that I might. Um, so maybe the my summary for this part is that maybe we can have nice things one day. Probably not, but maybe. Uh, so, and I, I realized that didn't maybe totally tie into the, um, the skateboarding thing, but again, I'm just presenting some ideas and some questions. Are we using computers correctly? Um, is, is computer skateboard for the mind? Uh, so <laughs> that's what I've got. That's where I'm at right now with that. Those are some of the things I'm thinking about along these lines. Improv improvisation, recombination of tools, tool building. Um, so just going to give you some takeaway resources if you want to dig into some of this stuff. Um, uh, maybe this is tangential as well. Who knows? Um, so there's some cool people I like in the computer industry who, because uh, a lot of what is, 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 is making this difficult are the, is the inherent complexity of our computers. They're so complex that how could we engage with them and write tools for them, you know, because they, it takes a thousand Google engineers to make a piece of software. So like, how could I make a, one tiny useful tool? Um, but I think it's possible that there's a lot of the complexity of computers is um, unnecessary. It's accidents of history or, you know, a certain corporate pressures or whatever. And possibly some of it could be unwound. Uh, so some of the people I really like on this are Jonathan Blow, um, uh, Casey Moratori, who um, they're, they're both pretty loud on Twitter. And they kind of come across as curmudgeons. And I want you to forgive that. Um, they, they are mad at when software is worse than it needs to be. And it, it sometimes it's unfair because I think every developer writes something that is not up to snuff or not as it's not perfect for sure. Um, 
But they're, what they're pointing at is there's a lot of lack of knowledge in, in, the, in the current programming community and a lot of people building on top of other people's abstractions that they don't understand. And you, the, you, that's, why, that's how you end up with sort of two complex of systems for anybody uh, to understand. Uh, Jonathan Blow has this really good talk. Ooh, let me find it, actually. I forgot to write this down. Okay, yeah, Jonathan Blow's P, uh, Jonathan Blow has a talk called Preventing the Collapse of Civilization, which is a must-watch. Um, Casey Muratori has a uh, kind of like a, not a fanciful, a um, kind of actual practical way uh, to unwind the complexity of like the current operating system computer stack. Uh, let me find that. It is called the 30 million line problem. And then uh, there's also a really good talk uh, by uh, Joe Armstrong, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, called The Mess We're In. That's really cool. Um, I also recommend the On The Metal podcast uh, for some technical deep dives. And uh, like this is, it is very technical, a lot of this stuff. And that's kind of, I get drawn into that because that's, uh, you know, what I'm interested in. Uh, so this is, none of these are super practical ways. Here's how you can make your own tools and make a computer like a skateboard. Um, but maybe they're like reasons why you can't, maybe. Um, so there's actually this, uh, something that gets brought up a lot, a lot on the On the Metal podcast is like the complexities of, of um, biosis, like the, the, what, the operating system that is, lives on your motherboard that when you boot your computer that operating system boots up like gets everything running and then boots to your real operating system like i'm definitely in a case like right now where booting to my bios takes like 15 seconds or whatever booting my operating system takes like one second after the bios is like all ready to go um something like that i'm probably exaggerating but uh, there's like some wild complexity that really doesn't seem like it needs to be there. Um, and there's a lot of people who are, are fighting the good fight of trying to simplify some of this stuff for, for, you know, selfish reasons and for like really noble reasons. Um, and it's just cool to know that kind of stuff is happening. Also, Jonathan blows on the, on the metal podcast. They talk to a lot of old timers, get, you get a better vibe of what systems were like back in the day. There's this guy who makes his own, like, internet company, like as far as internet infrastructure, which is really helpful for understanding how the internet works. Very good podcast. Uh, so those, uh, that's what I'm thinking about. That's what I'm into. Uh, hope I, uh, hope this is clear and helpful. Interesting. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm going for interesting and like discussion starter, right? That's, that's my, that's my angle right now. Um, I will have a new podcast next week sometime. Uh, I've got an interview lined up that I'm seriously excited about. Uh, thank you to everyone who's been listening and subscribed. Uh, huge thank you to uh, my Patreon supporters. It feels weird to even say that, but there are people who are supporting me on Patreon, which is wonderful. Uh, so yeah, that's um, that's the pod. 
thank you for listening. Paul.